Now, we had Donald Trump for a second day um, really broadcasting the American side of events. Now, other players in the region aren't necessarily rushing to give the U.S. all the credit, Russia among them. Yeah, I mean, this is not the first time that we have heard about the apparent death of al-Baghdadi, the ISIS leader. There were news of that in the past years. And actually, Russia was one of the countries that has consistently questioned uh, this version of events uh, by the United States. But what's different this time is that the U you have the U.S. president himself coming out and saying that DNA samples have confirmed with finality that al-Baghdadi has been killed. So uh, it remains to be seen whether the Russians are going to later on confirm this. Uh, but I think the position of the Russians is to uh, make it clear to the world that they're also a major player there, that they have their own intelligence resources, that they have their own allies on the ground. That's why they feel confident enough to even question America's version of uh, what happened to al-Baghdadi. They also, I, it would seem, are annoyed that Donald Trump wants to take all the credit for this operation as if they were operating independently, as well as for the end of ISIS, well, the ISIS's defeat at least. Um, without a question, I mean, you can imagine the Kurdish fighters may have also contributed to necessary intelligence on the ground, aside from other allies, and of course, including uh, the Russians, who are also very much uh, operating uh, in the area. So I think the Russians are trying to say here that don't take credit so much. And by the way, this is coming in light of the fact that Trump administration is being accused of abandoning its Kurdish allies, who, by the way, right now are striking peace deals with the Russians and the Syrian Assad regime in order to protect themselves from the Turkish offensive along with its Sunni Syrian allies. So then this brings us to um, an intriguing question is, A, this power vacuum, B, the mm. Pentagon says there are now 18,000 ISIS fighters still remaining. Right. Where do these people go? And is Southeast Asia a, a, a vulnerable to them relocating? Well, on one hand, uh, if true, the death of al-Baghdadi is going to be a huge hit for the ISIS or, uh, ISIS or Daesh group because... You know, in the past, we saw when bin Laden was killed for a moment, that created some leadership vacuum and weakened Al-Qaeda. In fact, the reason ISIS came into being was precisely because of the weakening faith in the successor of bin Laden. Here in Southeast Asia, we also saw that, for instance, when the Abu Sayyaf leader and the ISIS-designated Amir Isnulan Hapilun was killed in the Philippines in Marawi during a 2017 operation in, uh, in Marawi, it also weakened Abu Sayyaf and its ability to project power for a while. So we have some, uh, and not to mention the two potential successors, Al-Obaidi and uh, Al-Gardash, two Iraqi guys who may actually uh, be his successor, if they're still alive, by the way, none of them have the kind of spiritual, religious credentials that al-Baghdadi had, not to mention al-Baghdadi comes supposedly from the Quraysh tribe, which is the uh, tribe of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So that was the kind of credentials that al-Baghdadi brought in the table, but now these potential successors don't have it. Now, the question is, what is, what is going to happen with ISIS? Now, on one hand, in Southeast Asia, there's big war because they're up to 750 or 800 Southeast Asian ISIS fighters there. And if you look at the recent suicide bombings, whether in Surabaya or Hulu in the Philippines, which, by the way, was one of the first major suicide bombings in the Philippines, these were conducted by people who fled back to Southeast Asia 
from that part of the world. So the death of al-Baghdadi may weaken them in some sense, but it also could push their followers to try to engage in spectacular attacks in order to show to the world that they're still a force to reckon with. And this is going to be a huge logistical uh, headache. Now, even though there are not many Filipinos among the ISIS fighters there in northern Iraq, who could be, by the way, freed because of the war between the Turks and Kurds or whatever is happening there, uh, there's a fear that Indonesian or Malaysian fighters who may return to this part of the world, they may actually enter the Philippines or the supporters or sympathizers of ISIS in Southeast Asia may try to do something in order to say that ISIS is still alive. So these are the kind of worries that we're facing here in Southeast Asia right now, despite the fact that many see the death of al-Baghdadi as a welcome tactical, if not strategic, development. We know that Australia, in fact, has has worked with the Philippines in particular um, in that region where the, the Philippines have been vulnerable to ISIS fighters uh, in Southeast Asia. Do you see Australia playing a role? And, and, and particularly, you talk about Indonesia, our near neighbour, the Philippines, Malaysia. What do those governments do to try and kind of lock down their bases in anticipation of this? Well, I've talked to senior officials, including the Philippine Defense Minister and senior officials and generals in the Philippines and in Australia. And what I get is that the Marawi crisis in 2017, that five months long siege, actually forced countries to bring their heads together. So Indonesia, Philippines and Malaysia, for instance, are now trying to regularize trilateral maritime patrols, coordinated patrols in the porous borders of Philippines with these two countries where many of these ISIS fighters have been coming in and also, of course, the Al-Qaeda variants in previous decades. So there's more military coordination, more intelligence sharing, although, of course, there are problems. For instance, in the Philippines, it's the military at the forefront of counterterrorism, while in Malaysia and Indonesia, it's the police forces. So that also creates some interagency coordination problem. It's not perfect, but there has been movement in that direction. The other thing I get from top generals and officials in the Philippines is that, you know, for a long time, they've been trained to work with the Americans. But increasingly, a big number of the leadership positions in the, in, in the Philippine military are also now working with Australia. And Australia actually provided high-grade intelligence and surveillance support for the Philippines and special forces training for the Philippines during the Marawi crisis. I don't see those exercises and those coordinations going away. If anything, I think they're going to strengthen over the coming months and years as we think, as we worry about what could come after al-Baghdadi's reported death. Uh, Richard, always get, uh, good to get your perspective. Thanks so much. Pleasure.